you know, I, I really believe in purpose-built designs. You know, when w- the, the way we built the Jambox and the Jawbone brand or the SodaStream brand, you know, they're not interchangeable companies. They're own companies with their own aim, their own story. You know, it's important to me to that visual approach and functional approach and storytelling approach be something that can perpetuate and can be long-lasting. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. If you've listened to The Grand Tourist before, you know that we tend to feature designers and architects with a flair for the dramatic, or those who create objects and spaces that dazzle quite often for the benefit of a select few. My guest today, however, is someone who has elevated the everyday object, a soda maker, a lamp, a shoebox, and in doing so, transformed the discourse of design for decades, Yves Bahar. With his San Francisco-based firm Fuse Project, he founded in the late 90s, he's created innovative products for everyone from Herman Miller, Puma, and Samsung to L'Oreal, Nike, and many, many more. Originally from Switzerland, he went to school in California before cutting his teeth at Frog Design, a legendary firm in the field. He called his company Fuse Project because he wanted to combine technology and design in a way Silicon Valley wasn't exactly known for at the time. In the world of furniture and interiors, he also pushed the industry forward. Take his futuristic leaf lamp for Herman Miller. That was an early example of the use of LEDs and a bestseller. Notably, Eve was the brains behind the ultra-ambitious One Laptop Per Child program that brought the concept of low-cost computing to millions of children. More on that later. His latest project is the Tello, a four-door electric pickup truck that's being touted as the world's most efficient. And thanks to some of Eve's good design, it has the same truck bed space as some of the much larger gas-guzzling competitors. I caught up with the visionary talent from his offices in San Francisco to talk about his early days in Switzerland, his take on the latest headline-grabbing technologies like 3D-printed housing and artificial intelligence, and how a new wave of EVs will unleash a tidal wave of design innovation. And I guess, uh, you know, I wanted, I've known you uh, on and off for a while, but um, I guess I just wanted to start it off by asking you, you know, you've become sort of synonymous with both design and California, but I actually don't know much about your your early life in, in Switzerland. So I was wondering if you could share with me sort of what your earliest memories are uh, of life back in your first home. I grew up in Switzerland in a small town called Lausanne. And uh, it's it's beautiful, uh, lots of mountains, um, a beautiful lake uh, in front. Uh, it's Lake Geneva, and um, yeah, it was a very um, small European, you know, s- city upbringing, I guess. And uh, I read that you had sort of made sort of models and things like that. That you were kind of a kid who liked to, you know craft things and make things, you know, in your bedroom kind of thing. 
Yeah, my earliest memories were always of being busy trying to realize something, whether it was a complex Lego system. You know, it wasn't the Lego by numbers that we were doing back then. We just had big piles of Legos and we're coming up with our own concepts. Um, I remember very early on drawing a lot of boats. Somehow I had a fascination for three-mast sailboats. It felt like it, it was a very sort of internal life I was living. Um, I think my imagination was what my parents and people around me saw as uh, a little bit different maybe from, um, from uh, other kids and my siblings. And what did your parents do? My father is a philatelist. Um, for, for, for people who don't know what that means, uh, he's simply a stamp uh, collector and expert. Uh, my and and that was his full time job. Yes, believe it or not, that was his wow. full time job. Uh, and wow. my mom was a translator. Um, she translated German, Russian, French, and English. Oh wow! It sounds uh, like a Wes Anderson film, basically. <laughs> well, the STEM part certainly um, is a little bit Wes Anderson, but there was something you know, fascinating as kids, right, with stamps because uh, they come from many different countries and they have many different visuals and illustrations. Um, so there is something um, that always uh, seemed poetic about these very small pieces of paper that, and these postcards and these letters that were sent in, um, you know, hundreds, year, hundreds of years ago. And I'm also kind of fascinated by uh, your father's experience, uh, he was a Sephardic Jew, and so that mix in your story. And I, I remember reading a, an interview where you remembered hearing uh, Ladino spoke at home, which I guess uh, Americans may not totally realize, but like uh, Yiddish is sort of half Hebrew, half German. Ladino is sort of like half Spanish, half Hebrew in that same kind of way. Was it like an observant household? How did you, what, what are your memories of, of that? No, we're not very observant, but we're very aware of our story or background. And um, my father grew up in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and my whole family still resides there. Uh, my aunts and cousins, um, you know, all live in Turkey. And, um, you know, it was a, a beautiful contrast coming from Switzerland every summer and going into the crazy, busy life of, of Istanbul, you know, one of the largest cities in the world. Um, and um, it, it really felt, I really felt culturally like that was, that was where I was from until I understood the full story, which is, as you mentioned, Ladino is the language spoken um, back in Spain. Um, uh, right around the time of the Inquisition. And so the Jews that um, uh, escaped uh, or were kicked out of Spain uh, continued to speak that, that language. Um, and my, my you know, grandparents, um, I could hear them exchanging words in Ladino. And um, most of what I liked really was the incredible food, the, the Sephardic uh, Ladino origin uh, slash Turkish food that was uh, mm. that was being cooked in Istanbul was uh, really incredible. It's still incredible. It's still my favorite uh, my favorite meals. What's give me an example of a good Ladino dish? Oh, lots of uh, you know gratins and lots of um, 
beautiful desserts that take a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> these little uh, cheese triangles that we used to eat. Um, it's it's very um, uh, things are sort of cooked, uh, brewed for a long time. Um, and so it creates a very sort of flavorful uh, type of dishes. And we mentioned, uh, you know, you uh, making things at home like uh, or, you know, drawing things like uh, three mast ships and things like that. But I also kind of read that you were into, you know, sci-fi movies. And, and where do you think all that curiosity sort of came from? I think when you grow up in Switzerland and in, I would say, at, at, at back then, a conservative environment with um, just a few different types of studies you could do and a, a few different jobs that you could do, you know, not a lot of diversity in, in the choices. You know, for me, I was just, I was just letting myself be pulled by things that I felt were adventurous and were... Um, exciting and and worldly and so um you know whether it was through food or music um or um or or you know later science fiction um you know became really sort of a draw for me the the notion that um we could imagine future worlds um in writing but also in illustration um and that's where you know comic books um um you know, uh, which which there's such a huge culture of uh, futuristic, um, you know, often dystopian uh, comics. Um, you know, all that was, I, I guess, pulling me into an imaginary world where everything seemed possible and um, and unique. And um, there's, you know, for me, like sci-fi. I, I got more interested eventually in sci-fi that was um, that that was positive because it's very easy to sort of imagine negative futures, dystopian futures. But it's really the same creative exercise as thinking about positive futures, and I think that's um, more where I landed with my work. I guess that that is in contrast with the culture um, that I grew up in, which was um, much more about continuity and you know when, when you think about the banks and the, the history of switzerland um it's it's much more stayed in that way so i was naturally driven towards action and change in the future you uh you you went to design school and and how did that first happen why design school um there were not many design schools in switzerland in fact my parents had no idea and most people around me had no idea about what being a designer uh, was about. Um, so there were very small design studios, you know, maybe three, four people max around. Uh, and so I got really lucky when Art Center College of Design opened a European campus about 30 minutes from uh, from my home in Lausanne. And um, I enrolled in that and did two years there and then switched to the um, campus in Los Angeles in Pasadena. And what was that? What was that like? What was school like for you? Were you, were you a good student? <laughs> um, well, I was very dedicated. It, it felt at the time like I was really in a place where I had to make it in that because all of my friends went to university. I went to basically what's called 
you know, gymnasium in, in uh, Switzerland, which is essentially is high school, but a high school that preps you for university. And I was really the only one who didn't want to go to uh, to university, study economics or medicine. Um, and um, so it felt like I was taking this left turn into a really risky, um, you know, area. And I had to learn, you know, quickly and, and do well because there wasn't uh, really a fallback. Um, so I, I spent two years drawing nonstop and, um, and having to uh, really acquire skills that were tough to acquire. You know, when you're 18, 19, uh, learning to draw, learning to sketch, uh, learning to render, learning to take the ideas from your brain and putting, putting them on paper uh, was quite daunting. But it turns out after two, three, four years of doing that nonstop, um, I, I was a good draftsman eventually. Uh, but it took just work, uh, tons of work. And what kind back then uh, at the school, what did they, what were they preparing you for? What kind of career design career were they kind of prepping you for at the time? So I was focused on industrial design at uh, school at the Art Center College of Design. Um, but I was also taking a lot of graphic design classes, photography, film. Um, what I loved about it is the sort of diversity of creative fields that are uh, available there. And I was like a sponge. I was taking in all the different ways that um, we could be creative and I could integrate that into my design practice. And when did you, when the opportunity came up to switch to the school uh, in California, you know, what was that decision like for you? Did you have to go or did you, could you have just stayed and completed the program uh, back back in Switzerland, or did you kind of have to go? I didn't have to switch from the Swiss campus to the California campus, but I was excited to do so. I, th I felt they had more majors, so more uh, different fields at the one in, in uh, Pasadena. And it also felt like there was a much bigger world to go explore. So you know, as a 20-year-old, I think I, I made the transfer then. And of course, I went from, you know, a country of 6 million people to a city of, what, 12 million? <laughs> so, um, so it was exciting. You know, it was um, a discovery. It was, um, you know, great music scene. Uh, but it was a ton of work. I mean, people don't usually realize how much architecture design school, uh, how much people worked there, how we did all-nighters every week, how we were, you know, really sort of focused on getting great projects uh, built as students. Um, we even used to break into the workshop, the school workshop, in the middle of the night in order to continue on our projects um, after the after the the school would shut down you know there would be a whole bunch of students jumping the fence breaking the locks and getting all those dangerous machines table saws band saws going again so we could continue to build our mock-ups and then exiting discreetly you know discreetly kind of at six in the morning before the um, before the guards would come in so it, it was um it was an exciting 
uh, time, but uh, exhausting as well. And I'm just curious, like, is there, are there any projects from that time that you kind of fondly remember that did well or? I mean, at the time, uh, what was exciting is I had done a com competition um, with uh, Omega, the Swiss watch company. And uh, there were professional designers, well-known Italian design figures that were participating. And then our school did as well. And they selected my project for some reason and, and built uh, mock-ups, handmade mock-ups of the watches. So that was... You know, that was quite exciting. And then when I came to California, I became interested in uh, larger projects, so larger environmental projects. So I did sort of furniture systems, um, uh, you know, consumer electronics, um, you know, before all that stuff became connected and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. But there was a um, lot of opportunity to explore potential futures. And that's um, what I thought was was uh, the more exciting projects. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Material Bank. As you know, I've been a design journalist for 20 years. And in that time, I've visited dozens of designer studios. And sure, it's fun to see where architects and such work and sketch. But my favorite part of the tour is always the Material Library. And as any designer knows, finding, sourcing, and keeping track of samples is a major undertaking and a major headache. But there's no discipline of design without a keen knowledge and access to great and innovative materials. That's where Material Bank comes in. As the fastest and most sustainable platform to search, sample, and specify materials, it's become an indispensable tool. On Material Bank, you can search more than 500 brands in seconds, connect with reps, get vital specs in an instant, and most importantly, get those samples in hand overnight. It's the most sustainable way of pulling samples from around the world, and everything comes in one box. And it's more than just a place to browse, it's a connective network that's powering the design world to create amazing things. As you'll hear on this episode with Eve Bahar, materials and technology go hand in hand. And with any level of innovation, unfettered and fast access to samples just helps the inspiration strike all that much faster. It's free for designers to join, so go online to become a member at materialbank.com. And did you have like a, a dream path for your career when you were starting? Like, what did you think your career was going to be like when you kind of graduated? Well, I had I did a couple of internships, so I discovered uh, the Midwest. I did um, an internship before graduating, um, and in furniture at Steelcase. But that's also what, uh, since they're next door to Herman Miller, what kind of made me discover also Herman Miller in turn. Um, and you know, I was design was not very diversified or very well known in um, early to mid '90s when I graduated. And so it was, um, there were not many studios. American design didn't have um, a great reputation like you would find in Paris or London or Milan. And most most people I would speak to socially had no idea what, what design was, what industrial design was. They thought industrial design was about building power plants or, or, or industrial spaces. Um, so... So you had to really sort of 
I think, go for the best offices at the time. And um, and uh, there were many applicants and not many openings. So I think it took about, for me, it took about 150 plus phone calls to just, you know, when, when I had to go to a payphone and call these offices and ask them if they had received my portfolio and, you know, I had to be very, very persistent. And there was an additional obstacle, which is I was a foreigner. And when I got um, my second job at uh, Lunar Design, for example, in Palo Alto, they had never hired, hired uh, a foreign designer. I was the first uh, foreign-born designer there. And so the obstacle of getting a visa uh, was also uh daunting so but it was again it felt like a make or break moment in uh in my life you know if i if i didn't find a job here somewhere in california which i loved as a place um i would have to go back to switzerland mm-hmm. and back then i mean you know then what time what year did you, were you sort of first starting out in in, in the workforce was that like mid 90s 93 yeah 93 i mean that was you know, the pre-tech startup, but it was still kind of, you know, there was still a lot of new tech and Apple and that kind of thing. Uh, was that a part of the scene for you personally at the time? Did you knew, did you know a lot of people working in technology and this kind of startup culture that kind of is much more known and commonplace, uh, unlike it back then? The startup culture wasn't really around in 93, not in terms of, uh, consumer um, type of startups, but um, Apple, Hewlett Packard, uh, Silicon Graphics, where you know where where the sort of newer type of companies that eventually would need to look at their products as a consumer product because the the early nineties were just at that at that starting point where the computer was moving away from enterprise into people's homes. And that created all kinds of design problems and design opportunities. So when I first started working at Lunar, um, we did a number of projects with, uh, with Apple, for example. And that was quite exciting. Um, and I learned a lot there. I learned a lot by by partnering with um, with the folks at Apple. Um, I was able to experiment with, you know, the very first translucent plastic parts um, that got integrated into one of my projects. And um, and was that was that translucent project like a precursor to the the first iMac? It wasn't a precursor to the iMac, but I think it was um, the first time a translucent part got used in a, in a project. It was actually a, an early, it was in a very early sort of server uh, that Apple was designing uh, for small creative offices. But I think it became an inspiration um, and then translucent plastic became exciting for, for a lot of folks in the late 90s. But there was, you know, there was definitely a sense of excitement, you know, where Silicon Valley did not have a lot of culture per se, and design was really a way to bring these companies, these technologies 
into into a larger world outside of being purely technologically focused and to start to think about how how these products live in people's uh, homes and 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 surround them at work um, so that that was a sort of historical time and luckily for me design was a need and when did that when did you go to frog design was that before or after right after I, I went to frog design i think i was 28 years old when i got hired at frog how would you describe frog to people that don't know just to start us off like well what, what? frog was the high octane exciting design company of the time um they were building a lot of products directly with steve jobs um so they created the new uh, design language for Apple at the time, and um, but they were also the only one at the time that was really doing international work. You know, I, I worked with Lufthansa on their airplanes and uh, interiors. I worked on many, you know, projects in Israel, projects uh, in Italy. There, there was a real sort of. Uh, globalness about frog design that made it quite different from, I would say, you know, the more management run like agencies, um, you know, in the, in California then. And so what did you, you know, uh, how did you find your job there? What was that like? What did they hire you for? Well, I was, I was very young. I was 28. Um, they made me a design lead, which, put me in the crosshairs of uh, some of the most um, powerful people in, in the design world, which was wow. really fun and exciting. And I would be flying to places all the time. And, you know, as a 28-year-old, it felt very much empowering because I would show up in meetings and the people in those meetings, boardrooms and, and, and conference rooms, would be much older than I. They would be PhDs and and scientists and people who were incredibly accomplished. And at some point in the meeting, they would turn to the 28-year-old and say, "Well, what do you think?" And as I was sketching all the time, I would I would show some drawings and I would see their their you know their 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 eyes light up suddenly everything that they had been talking about their vision their passion the things that they had built was taking shape and so and it was you know for 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 a european to have people look at you and expect you to contribute in a you know senior meeting um it definitely felt um completely different uh, it felt powerful. It felt uh, incredibly empowering for me. Um, and it really changed, in a way, it kind of reshaped my brain from being a bit more Swiss and introverted to being comfortable in situations um, where you're being asked to, you know, questions when you're being asked your opinion. And that was really the miracle of being a young designer in this emerging culture of, of technology and innovation. Um, it, it felt miraculous, to be honest. I mean, my friends back in Switzerland could not believe that I was being sent to faraway places and 
I had a voice. I had a, I had something to say. Before we return to Eve Bahar, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. When it comes to the living room, once you pick a sofa, from Polyform of course, I always find it difficult to choose the right coffee table. Round or square, wood or marble, just one or a combination of tables, especially if you have a large space. The Mush Coffee Table by Jean-Marie Massaud is an ingenious design that lets you tailor exactly what you need for your space in a sleek and unassuming package that works in almost any room. It comes in five versions, both round, square, and rectangular, with choices in wood or leather covered for both the structure and the top. Its geometric look is enhanced by smaller, higher tables in the line that can be paired with the larger ones to create a functional 3D look ideal for entertaining. Or just for eating on the sofa, which of course one would never do in a grand tourist household. For more information about the Mush Coffee Table and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And I understand that, you know, from uh, an interview you had once done that you said that you felt that something was missing from the creative process at Frog that kind of fueled what your ambitions were for Fuse Project. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that and tell us sort of like what you saw as a as a missing part of your of the process at frog that kind of made you go yeah but if i had my own my own studio we could do it like this yeah i think i think there's always a little bit of hubris when you're a young designer you're like you're like you know a young entrepreneur you're like i can do this better and i certainly felt that the part i was excited about was the notion that design wasn't just a siloed um, practice that you know design at its most impactful um, was a mixture of different practices different disciplines of design strategy and brand and industrial design um, uh, environments um, and when you brought people from all these different environments to collaborate together, it felt like the outcomes um, were just so much stronger. And I think when I started Fuse Project in 1999, we were starting to see that emerge from people like Apple, right? The the way the product, the software, the user experience, the interface, the digital, the retail, the way all that started to work together was quite miraculous and quite exciting. And I felt that's what really companies, businesses needed and what the world of design needed is a more integrated um, uh, multidisciplinary studio. And that's when I founded Fuse Project, something that was being talked about in the industry at Frog and other places, but I didn't see it practiced. And I was like, what would it look like if we actually practice this notion of integrated design, of multidisciplinary design. And what was your first big project with uh, 
when you struck out on your own? Do you like your first kind of big commission? Well, there were no big commissions. I mean, I was just a one <laughs> any commission. I was a one man show, and um, I had eventually I got an intern, one of my students um, from when I was teaching at CCA, California College of the Arts. Um, and I started with a lot of really humble projects, which made me learn something, is that design can make a difference in with the humblest of uh, opportunities. Uh, the first two projects I did was uh, a shampoo bottle for my hairdresser <laughs> uh, who was ambitious and wanted to sort of launch a new a new concept um, and then similarly uh, a perfume bottle and and it was fascinating because these very small projects with very little money in them were getting all this attention because they were unique they were different within their own fields and industries and they got me these commissions in Europe with much with you know with much bigger entities because what i discovered is that fashion and 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 especially european fashion is very curious they're looking for the next trend the next emerging idea and i was able to show concepts uh, that you know, where really kind of, drew, you know, drew these bigger commissions in, including one, actually one concept I did for a shoe for the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, um, a, a futuristic shoe, uh, got me Nike as, um, as a client. So I, yeah. I, I... Was that Birkenstock? Uh, no, I, I, it got me Birkenstock as well. So oh, I got okay. two. I got Nike and Birkenstock uh, as clients after after doing a um, uh, a project that was um, that was called the Learning Shoe, and it was actually a connected shoe, which we haven't really seen even. You know, that was 1999, so it's been 23 years, and we have yet to see this uh, concept being built. But when when Nike came to me, uh, John Hoke. Uh, at the time said, um, you know, I think we're five years away from building this. So there is something to be said about being futuristic, uh, being a little sci-fi, as we were talking about this a minute ago, um, and, and putting ideas of what's next uh, out in the world and, and seeing what comes back. And there was, uh, you know, there was that period where, you know, the startups became and the direct involvement of designers in startups. Tell me about why you started these sort of design ventures. You know, what was the need and, and how, you know, from, from what my limited understanding of how that's structured is essentially someone wants to start a new company. Um, well, I don't know, SodaStream or whatever it could be and comes to you and says, Hey, if you partner with me and build me this next great invention that I'm going to take directly to market or whatever, um, you can get a, a a piece of the company essentially, uh, as as you would in any kind of executive coming into a startup. Is that is that why that kind of started? Because just doing the kind of traditional studio work was not sustainable, or or top, how did that happen? No, studio work is sustainable. But what I what I saw out there more is is two things. One, I saw that startups were doing the most exciting work, that they were challenging the status quo, that they were challenging much larger industries. And this David versus Goliath sort of setup seemed pretty exciting, especially when 
you know, Fuse Project and I were, you know, really focused on new to the world type of ideas. So, in but in order to 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 reach, you know, startups, um, we had to find a different business model because obviously they're not, they don't have all the um, funds uh, available. They um, they're being more efficient with their capital, um, and something they understood, you know very, very quickly is that aligning the incentives between designers, engineers, strategists, and what they're doing um, creates a much more engaged relationship. And then on the other side, for me, I've always known that long-term relationships between designers and a business, an entrepreneur, etc., really creates the best possible work. You know, I was I was looking at the work that Richard Sapper did for 25 years with IBM. I was looking at the work, um, you know, at Olivetti that Ettore Sotstas and and others were doing, and it was clear that the more you work with someone, the better the outcomes, the better the work. The, the higher the quality. And so how do you create long-term relationships where the incentives are aligned? If it works out, we all do well. Uh, we all work towards success, not just awards or having something that's, uh, you know, that you can show off to your friends, but really something that will be successful in the market and, um, and be good design work. And so that, completely makes sense um design venture made sell made sense from both the quality of the outcomes and the business model and your one laptop per child project was so influential at the time um and in a good way and i was wondering if you could tell us the story about how that came about and now uh some years later with some hindsight you know what parts of those projects were a, a huge success in your mind or was there anything that you kind of feel like could have been done differently? Cause it was one of those, uh, you know, big lofty ideas, right. To, uh, seemingly, uh, the biggest lofty idea you could possibly come up with. Um, tell me about this one laptop per child part of your life. Absolutely. I mean, every, Every startup is lofty, has some level of hubris, has some level of, um, you know, promised land. And I think you need to sort of have that positive attitude in order for anything to be built in the world. It's so hard to be in design. It's so hard to build something new, to find the money and to make it work, and then to have people accept it. You, you have to almost... You know, suspend doubt and and completely forget about fear, and um, not be worried about maybe even getting ridiculed, right? If it doesn't work out. But the one laptop per child was was a phenomenal um, adventure for me and for the team um, because the way it came about is we got a call from. One of uh, Nicola, Nicola, Nicholas Nicopante's um, people, you know, from MIT, and he said, "Hey, we're working on this vision for a hundred-dollar laptop for children in the developing world. They don't have these tools. Uh, the digital divide is getting bigger between the um, 
Western countries um, uh, and the developing world. And, you know, we think we have a solution. And so we actually competed for the project a little bit in the beginning, uh, created some models. It went to a board at MIT and we got chosen. And I remember that moment when uh, Nicholas called me and he said, you got it. It's yours. Let's go do this together. Um, you know, definitely something I will remember for the rest of my life. And then, and then we built this extremely complex, but also extremely simple purpose-built product for kids. You know, sometimes they're in the South. Sometimes they're in, uh, <clears throat> you know, places that that have a lot of electricity or sometimes they don't have electricity. We had to sort of think about all the different conditions that these laptops would, would go into, and especially the fact that they had to be built for kids' lives, me being robust and being simple to utilize, um, and, and also offer opportunities for discovery, for programming, for different types of languages, different types of um, education that they could receive through it. And so, you know, we got endorsed by the United Nations and it became this controversial project where the powers that be and the big, the big computer makers were against it because it didn't serve their aims. Um, <clears throat> and so it was a, a David versus Goliath. Um, but eventually we built it, we launched it. Uh, some countries adopted it at a very high rate. A country like Uruguay, every single child in Uruguay had a one laptop per child, Peru. Um, and so, you know, I, mean, I think about three, three and a half million of them made it out there. And for years, they were part of, uh, you know, uh, education systems. And it, it, if, when you go back, there's been actually some um, studies that were made. And in some of these countries, they really identified the fact that the um, the one laptop per child, the OLPC, um, really created um, the the proof points that these countries needed to invest in IT in IT education. Countries that adopted it in mass, like Uruguay and and others, actually are are doing well from that standpoint. But of course, you know when um, when we opened the door. It, it, the larger companies, the Dells and the Microsofts of this world, saw this not as a nonprofit opportunity, which we were a nonprofit, uh, but they saw it as a business opportunity. So suddenly they, you know, so in a way you could say, well, the one laptop per ch child failed because we didn't ship a laptop to every kid around the world. But I think we proved a point that made everyone else ship a laptop to every kid around the world. So I don't see it entirely as um, as the fact that we missed the ultimate goal. Um, I just saw it, you know, more along the lines of, uh, you know, a food aid nonprofit that suddenly got McDonald's and Wendy's to compete with them and ended up feeding everybody, hopefully with better food. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, in retrospect, I still feel it was a game changer. And I'll add the fact that it really showed something new. It really showed nonprofits around the world that design can make a really big difference because it can be very efficient. 
it can satisfy the people that these nonprofits are trying to serve. And then we were able to do that with um, other incredible projects around the world, whether it's uh, Verbien in Mexico that distributed that that is distributing six and a half million pairs of eyeglasses to kid, children in school, or whether it's with um, the ocean cleanup. Um, there is, um, you know, design is now seen as not something just for uh, rich corporations and their customers, but also something that makes um, nonprofits and and uh, non-governmental agencies um, function better and achieve their goals. Before we return to Eve Bahar, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. For more than 25 years, Fort Street Studio has been creating enduring carpet designs and heirloom qualities that are hand-woven and hand-knotted in beautiful fiber combinations that are luxurious yet natural and renewable. As pioneers of the painterly, non-repeating aesthetic in modern rug design, originating from watercolor art, the creative team at Fort Street Studio continues to honor the artists and artisans of the past while innovating for the future. With a catalog of over 150 original designs, the brand offers a broad range of options for interior designers to fit any project's needs. Each carpet is customizable in size, shape, and color, as large as 27 feet wide or over 40 feet long for both area rug applications or wall-to-wall. And the company's in-house art studio can scale motifs and repeats to maintain the spirit of each design to adapt to any furniture plan. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit fourthstreetstudio.com. And, you know, moving on to another one of your... uh, recent more recent projects is uh 3d printed housing um and and i guess you know as that is a technology that is still growing and evolving and uh becoming more accepted in communities with regulations and and um you know specifications for for what can be housing and all that kind of thing um i feel like since you first started working on that project and when i first started hearing about it today the idea of housing and affordable housing is even worse than it's ever been this the need is sort of kind of exploded and i was wondering you must have done a lot of work in this field you must have done a ton of research and spoken to a ton of people what what do politicians critics uh or you know observers not really understanding about why we can't house people more what do we not getting about this crisis well affordable housing is um is in need everywhere uh whether it's in uh, developing world places like mexico where we actually built a little village um, of 50 houses with 3d printing um whether it's with adus the need is there the policies have changed dramatically so california and many other states now are accelerating permitting and allowing people to add a small building uh, in their backyard, whether it's for family or for rental. And so there is, there has been quite a bit of change where the consumer has been given the opportunity to, to, to do that. But I would say, you know, the need is at, a, at an industrial scale today because of homelessness that is being experienced by, um, by so many people. And uh, clearly the housing prices have gone, have gone crazy. And so 
prefabs, which we, we have also shown some prefabs and worked on prefabs, um, as well as affordable housing, whether they're three printed or not, um, is is one of the solutions to, to this problem. It needs to be absolutely accelerated. I think the challenge is funding. Uh, there's also a challenge with homeowners resistance. Um, um, and you know, developers that are not finding the, the money in those. So uh, does it need to accelerate 100%? Are the technologies in place? This is, uh, this is a, a continuing battle in so many ways. Um, but there are some uh, homeless housing uh, communities that are being built in Texas, uh, around Austin, I believe, um, that are 3D printed as well. So it's emergent. It needs to be accelerated. Usually, you know, the accelerant for startups is uh, profits, <laughs> success, uh, market success. Um, in this case, um, that needs to be more along the lines of policy, um, which we have yet to see. And do you think that it, this is purely a, a policy issue or can we sort of design ourselves out of this crisis are we kind of like do we need more better design to kind of fix some problems or is it really just uh, a matter of political will more than it is you know design i think political will and design you know uh can be great allies and and make it happen i mean if when you look at finland you know the whole system is designed in Finland so people don't fall through the, the safety nets, the sort of social safety nets. You know, the minute you are homeless in some northern European countries, you're giving a house, you're giving social services, you're giving um, you know advisement around employment, uh, you're given a paycheck, and the result of that is a. 85 to 90 percent of people who find themselves in that situation get out of it and get back uh, get back on their feet and by the way it's a lot less than we're spending in New York or California on uh, on, on on homelessness so there are solutions um, the political will to apply them throughout and maybe the resistance from different counties and cities the sort of legal complexity that we live in in the u.s makes it um makes it a gigantic challenge to uh, to go after and you know speaking of big challenges obviously um sustainability and mobility are have been a huge part of your uh <laughs> huge part of your career um and now you're working on the telo am i am i pronouncing it correctly telo or tello Tello, I say Tello, but Tello, Tello okay. sounds good too. Um, <laughs> yeah, mobility, transportation um, has seen really, a, is, is in a very exciting phase with uh, EVs. Uh, electrical vehicles are, are really an incredible environmental solution, but they also are the cost of ownership of um uh, of an EV is completely different from a gasoline engine. Um, it costs very little to nothing on a yearly basis compared to gasoline cars that are often in the garage, need service, etc. So there is a there there with it. And I partnered with um, two entrepreneurs, ex-Tesla, uh, ex-supply chain, EV supply chain uh, CEO, and um, we've built a car in about a year. 
Um, and a car it seems very fast, right? For for the automotive universe. Well, it is very fast in I would say a conventional uh, automotive environment, which um, tends to be very marketing driven. And um, but but in our case, um, we built a great platform, and um, it's it's one of the most exciting things I've ever worked on because it's very much geared to what myself and so many of our uh, friends um, and family need. Um, it's basically, so Tello really is a completely new solution for uh, an urban environment uh, for a car. Imagine uh, Toyota Tacoma pickup truck um, with, a, with a nice size truck bed, 60-inch truck bed, four doors, five passenger, and we can replicate uh, taking advantage of, of size and, and um, efficiencies. We can replicate that same um, performance or that same uh, you know, workhorse uh, type of vehicle, but front to back in the size of a Mini. And so uh, suddenly you can have the full functionality of a, of a, of a, of a nice size pickup truck and yet, it's easy to park. It's easy to leave your your, your things there because we have a tonneau uh, door that that closes up the um, uh, the truck bed. Um, there is just a lot of exciting uh, comfort and configurations, as well as safety features that um, can be built into these cars today. And so, there's really a revolution, I believe, that's going to happen with. EV car design in the coming years. And what do you attribute to this sort of revolution that sort of seems to be accelerating? It seems like now you do hear about other, you know, different types of whether it's a EVs like a luxury sedan and people are kind of creating these new companies. What, how are people able just to do this, which in the past would have been sort of, I think, insurmountable with all of the massive machine that needs to go behind, you know, creating another Ford Motor Company, for example. Exactly. So uh, similarly to the way you saw consumer products uh, transformed in the early 90s, right? Um, in, the, in the early 90s, it became clear that you could contract manufacture your consumer electronics, your computers, your TVs, your phones. In the past... You know, the Sonys of this world, they had to own the factory. They had, you had to build your own factory. You had to own your factory and the tooling um, in order to put, elect, you know, consumer products out in the, in the world. Uh, with contract manufacturing, you don't have to do that anymore. And the same is happening to the car industry. When, uh, if, if, if you're launching a new car and you need to build a factory for it, that's a two to three billion dollar investment in, um, in, the, in the production. Um, but Tello is going to be contract manufactured. Um, there's four, three or four other companies in the US that are going this route, which means that um, new concepts, new ideas can really emerge um, from good engineers and designers uh, working together, the types of products that we really need. I think the car companies, the established car, big car companies out there, are pretty much, you know, taking legacy products and just electrifying them uh, with EV. 
um, batteries and engines. But I think for me, that's not taking advantage of the full potential of uh, electrification, um, which is what we're doing with Tello. What is sort of the ambitions for this car? Is it going to be like a different series of vehicles in different sizes, or is it really focused on this one kind of form? Well, Tello is launching its first vehicle, which is um, an urban and adventure you know, pickup truck. Um, and there will be other concepts um, past that. But of course, the goal is to launch the first successful um, small-scale you know, truck in the United States. Um, and then from there, once, once you have one model that works really well and that people like, uh, not unlike Tesla and others, um, that there's, there's uh, more possibilities. And why a pickup truck for the first one? So for me, the pickup truck is really the popular vehicle in the United States and South America. Um, it's the best-selling vehicle type, um, you know, here and other places. But I don't see anything being built that is, you know, truly different. I mean, they're, they tend to be very large, very aggressive-looking um, not so functional, actually, um, and they tend to speak to, I would say, you know, a different type of uh, customer than um, than we're speaking to. So, you know, in some ways, this is an area where we've seen not a whole lot of innovation. We've seen supersizing. We've seen you know, gas guzzlers, um, but just um, just taking one of these very large, uh, you know, hawking type of, you know, vehicles and changing them to EV doesn't really, you know, doesn't fulfill the environmental mission, but also doesn't really address what people really need. And so, especially in a in a more urban environment where streets are tighter, parking is uh, harder to find. Not everybody has a garage, um, so um, it really feels like it's a missing link, a missing product in the area of, in the very popular area of pickup trucks. Um, and so far, there hasn't been a single person I've showed it to who said who told me they're not putting a reservation on it. So. <laughs> And uh, I have to ask, since I have you here, uh, what is Eve Bahar's take on the doomsaying that goes around AI and someone who is a, a foremost designer in San Francisco? Well, you know, I'm actually a designer who has applied AI and robotics in many different products. When you think about the happiest baby snoo, the, the smart bassinet we designed, when you think about uh, Moxie, the educational robot, or some of the aging products, some of the medical products we have made, um, they all use AI. And they all use, um, and some of them use robotics as well. And so my take is that I'm more interested in technology serving people in needs, people who, um, you know, young parents or the aging or people who have a certain condition. And I think this is where AI 
and sometimes robotics really shine because they deliver a, uh, a service, they deliver on a need that is very clear, very well-defined, um, and the results are extraordinary. I mean, they, it makes a huge difference in people's lives. I'm less convinced that general purpose AI, general purpose, you know, robotics, the robot that's cooking your dinner and making your bed, I'm a lot less convinced that that is um, a positive for, you know, for society or that's it's even something that will really create any, you know, any kind of progress. I, um, why? Because the comple- the level of complexity, the level of service that these things need, the, the, you know, is not, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's not, um, very, uh, economically compelling for me. Um, so, you know, of course, and the other thing, I mean, I would say the other thing I'm very worried about is I feel like skills are very important. Knowing how to draw, knowing how to write, knowing how to code. I find these skills to be, you know, the type of the type of capabilities we acquire in our teenage years and then our early twenties that really drive us forward. And if there is no more incentive to be a good draftsman, to create beautiful photography, to code, um, if 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 the incentives are not there, what are the you know teens out there that are different? What are what are they going to apply themselves you know to? Um, and so I'm I'm a little bit I'm not so convinced that I, I don't really see a a big positive. I think we clearly screwed up youth already with social media. Um, and so I'm worried about what this will do to um, their desire to be proficient at, uh, at things as well. Um, because at the end of the day, shortcuts are just too easy. You know, they're just, it's, it's a fallback. It's something that if the shortcut's here, uh, it's very hard to make the choice of taking the hard, long road. And do you have kids? I have four kids. Oh, four kids. Do you worry? Do you worry about your your kids when you think about? I mean, well, social media is one thing, but also things like AI and and technology and how they they may not learn how to you know draft you know with pencil and paper like you may have learned and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely worried for um, for their sense of self and self worth. Um, because I mean, I can see in my smaller kids the satisfaction of writing a beautiful poem, like my nine-year-old just did last week. The satisfaction of, you know, drawing something beautiful, or or she made some tie-dye T-shirts the week before that. There's just such a such a beauty and a drive and feeling like you're making things. The same the same drive the same way that I was able to apply my imagination in my teen years, if I didn't have that, I don't know what I would have become. I don't know. I don't know if I would have uh, gotten anywhere really. And so I am worried um, about our lives being made of shortcuts and us never, you know, giving ourselves 
and especially teens, uh, the opportunity to take the long road, the hard road. And when it, when it comes to the hard road, this brings me to my last question. You know, I was looking through your last book and it reminded me of how many amazing projects of yours, you know, maybe never even made it past the prototype stage. And so as a creative person and to a lot of creative people out there listening, whether they're a designer or an artist or how do you personally, as a creative person, deal with this kind of tension, knowing that a project you could work on for years that could you think could really do amazing good and just be or just be uh, a heck of a lot of fun to see out in the world, like not get not get to the finish line. How do you how do you personally deal with this? Well, I've been I've been blessed. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky that so many of our projects have made it out and and and, and have made a difference in people's lives. Um, and I think you know, for me, I often replace the word design with the word intent or purpose. And as a designer, I'm really interested in the notion of purpose. Um, I really believe that design is the first sign of human intent. You know, what is it that you want to see out in the world? Um, what What is it that you feel will make a positive difference? So, you know, my my belief is that really the role of design is to accelerate the adoption of new ideas. And we need new ideas. We need new ideas, whenever, whether it's about our environmental challenges or uh, health and education um, uh, challenges. Like design is there really to address humanistic needs and maybe reconcile some of these paradoxes, um, the paradoxes of our lives. Um, and, you know, so will all of the ideas that you dream up make it into, into the real world? Absolutely not. I do feel like we're, when your intentions are about satisfying a human need, about um, not taking over the world, but rather you know, being a companion, a good companion to, to, to someone's life. Um, I think that more of the projects see the light of day. Um, there needs to be goodness in what we do. Um, and I believe that that's what people expect of us. Thank you to Eve Bahar, Cameron PR, and everyone at Fuse Project for making this episode happen the editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.